Okay, episode 29, I think. Uh, this is another solo recording. I haven't done one for a couple of weeks and stuff keeps happening. So this is just a bit of a download on stuff that I think is kind of interesting right now. Coming up, we've got a quick recap of the Queen's speech and the financial services bill, a bit on the government's green finance strategy. We've just had the FCA's regulatory initiatives grid published, the latest update on that. We're going to do a bit on value for money. The IFS retirement income report, a bit on a meeting with Guy Opperman from a couple of weeks ago, which was quite informative, a bit of a download on DWP policy. Um, And finally, a bit of a hint from Labour on the direction of their personal tax thinking might be going. And given the state of politics today, it would be rash to make any bets on the outcome of the next general election. Though I did actually back earlier this year make a wager on who the next leader of the Conservative Party would be. I'm not I'm not gambling man, but I did make a little bet. So we'll see. Anyway, look, just to remind you, the Lancat is the UK's finest financial services consultancy. We do data analysis on platforms and the IFA sector. We help businesses with proposition development, with insight and communications and policy engagement work. So if you're listening to this and you're not already working with the Lancat, you should be asking yourself, why not? Okay, so commercial over. Right, Queen's speech. So we kind of knew we weren't getting a pensions bill, so that wasn't any great surprise. I will come back to that in a minute. But we are getting a financial services bill, which is quite exciting. So there's regulatory review stuff still up for grabs. The future of financial regulation is still a bit up for grabs. And we haven't yet seen any white smoke on the advice guidance boundary. There you go, getting in early with an obligatory weekly reference to that bit of regulation. That's a bingo, as Hans Lander would say. Okay, so on the advice guidance stuff, going around the industry, it's abundantly clear that everyone's up for a fight on this one. Lindsay Ricks was quoted from Canada Life, was quoted in the Pinks recently talking about this. Chris Hills from HL has been waxing lyrical about it. Tim Fassam from, excellent Tim, from PIMFA, was talking about this again recently. And to be honest, the worst you'll get people saying about this is, eh, well, we might be able to work within the current system. Whereas weighed against that, you've got an awful lot of voices calling for change. So this one is down to the Treasury initially, and then the FCA, but there is clearly still a huge appetite for nudging that boundary a bit. So it'll be really interesting to see what comes out in that financial services bill. What it will definitely do is shift a lot of the regulatory rulemaking from Parliament onto the FCA, which is what we can do now we've left the European Union and we can exercise proper democratic control bypassing responsibility from elected representatives over to faceless regulatory bureaucrats. But at least they are our faceless regulatory bureaucrats. So that's all to the good. So a challenge for the FCA to show transparency and accountability in its rulemaking, I think. So I think, you know, this is this is a really interesting and exciting development in how regulations get made and should make things more efficient. But, you know, it's, it's kind of down to the FCA on how they implement it. And and there we are. I also think it will probably need a bit of a beefing up of parliamentary scrutiny. And I'm looking across at the Treasury Committee here and whether they've got quite enough foot soldiers to do the work I think they're going to have to do to scrutinise the FCA's activities effectively. In that financial services bill, we're also kind of, we're looking at reform of solvency too. 
And I, and I can tell this is a good thing because Mick McAteer is very angry about it. Um, I mean, I, I, I like Mick McAteer whenever I've met him. We've got on well together. Um, I, I think he's a genuine and honest individual. But he does seem to spend quite a lot of his time simmering with outrage at the iniquities of the capitalist system. Everybody else I've spoken to seems really quite enthused about this reform of solvency too. But what I've not yet seen is any kind of analysis of what it's going to do to product pricing and things like you know annuities or whatever. So if anyone's got any insights on that, do please get in touch. I'm also interested by the government's promise to make it safer to invest in financial products and to better support the victims of financial scams, because this whole area is a bit of a mess. And if you listened to the podcast I did a while ago with Philippa Han on the, the British Steel Day Bark, you know, she talked a bit about there about some of the holes in the, in the whole kind of system. But what continually strikes me is that there is not, for consumers, a really easily discernible, visible demarcation between regulated products and services and unregulated products and services. And this boundary, it should be like the Great Wall of China. You should be able to see it from space, right? It should be really easy for people to discern whether the person they're talking to and the product they're buying is inside the regulatory perimeter, is protected. If it goes wrong, if it fails to deliver on its promises, they will get compensated. And, and then if it's outside, you won't. And I think that's still a, a really key problem. I think there's been a lot of good work that's been done on fraud prevention. But, you know, we're pushing uphill a bit here. We're making life difficult for ourselves. And I think, you know, this comes down to the, the FSCS, to FOS, to the FCA, to how they regulate the firms that they are tasked with regulating the regulated firms and how that gets presented to the public. And, you know, if you just try and work your way around the FCA's website, is this firm regulated or not? If it is safe or not? Even that is not intuitive or consumer friendly. It's got better, but it's still not as good as it should be. And in the meantime, we've got an FSCS levy costing, you know, upwards of £600 million a year. And that was the cost of compensation on top of whatever funds were recovered from failed firms. And that looks like a lot of failure to me. So I think, firstly, the FCA and the FCS, and, and, and perhaps FOS as well, between them should take responsibility for the regulated transactions that do take place within their jurisdiction. It should be utterly ambiguous whether what you're buying is, is protected or not. And it should be like Atoll. You know if you're buying something within the perimeter, you're covered. And if you don't, you're not. It's simple. And then on top of that, I think those regulators should have power to police and prosecute any firm that abuses this FCA brand if they're not actually regulated. So if anyone asks that question, is this regulated by the FCA, and they get a positive response, they know they're safe, right? And that's, that doesn't happen at the moment. It's not that clear. And I think until that is done, I mean, look at it from the consumer's end of the telescope, right? The reason they get seduced by sexy-sounding, you know, Costa Rican rainforest funds or whatever, or property developments in Bulgaria, is because, uh, well, one, they're seduced by offers of high returns, and two, because they're sweet-talked into thinking that, that nothing will go wrong. And they should always have at the back of their mind, is this regulated? Is this safe? Does the FCA cover this? Because that doesn't happen at the moment. So I'd really like to see more movement on that, and maybe this bill will give us a bit of an opportunity for that. Okay. So we've also had the Green Finance Strategy update. The government originally outlined a plan in 2019 for greening finance, for financing green, and capturing the opportunity presented by the transition. And they've published an update now which uh, reviews kind of recent initiatives such as COP26, 
TCFD roadmap and so on. And their plan with this update is to take stock of progress so far and set out how the UK can better ensure the financial services industry is supporting the UK's energy security, climate and environmental objectives. So all to the good. So they've put out this call for evidence for their update, 39 questions in it on four key objectives. And and those objectives are capturing the opportunity of green finance, Uh, mobilising finance for the UK's energy security climate, greening the financial system and leading internationally. There's always a kind of post-Brexit dimension to to a lot of stuff that comes out of the government these days. So I think that's, that's, you know, if sort of ESG is your bag at all, that one's worth having a look at. I just want to flag something that came up, and this is not, I don't claim any expertise in this area. I don't claim any expertise in many areas. But there's an interesting question around fund manager research because it's been put to me that the cost of research, you know, fund managers, they spend millions, hundreds of millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of pounds on their investment research processes. And the cost of that research used to be taken out of the fund. And now it isn't. Now it sits on the asset manager's own P&L balance sheets. And so what was a relatively small cost in the context of the overall fund, funds which cost, you know, have hundreds of millions or billions of pounds in them, has now become a very substantial cost on the balance sheet of the asset manager, probably typically the second highest cost after their payroll. So I understand this is now leading to a bit of a drop in the amount of money spent on investment research. And I think the interesting bit here is when you look at things like the UNPRI, the FRC Stewardship Code, Sustainable Development Goals, TCFD, SFDR, the Sustainable Sustainability Disclosure Requirements coming through, the Green Taxonomy, all this kind of stuff, you know, this real drive towards greening our financial system. For the fund managers to deliver on that all costs money. And my understanding is that manager spending on conventional research is falling, and while spending on ESG research is rising, you know, the markets are a bit all over the place at the moment. That has an impact on asset manager profitability, and that potentially presents a threat to their capacity and their capability to deliver on the whole green finance agenda. So that's what I've been told. Again, if anyone, if anyone can add to that, do please get in touch. So we are looking forward to getting the sustainability disclosure requirements coming out from the FCA at some point in the next month or two. It was flagged in their regulatory initiatives grid, which was published very recently. So uh, we're now expecting a consultation from the FCA imminently, which they tell me is going to be a three-month consultation because they really want to kind of dig into this. And it will overlap on things like disclosure regulations, because it turns out people don't read kids, you know, who knew. And they want to make sure it's kind of works in harmony with all the other initiatives going on at the moment for the likes of the DWP and so on. So one to look out for there. And as I said, we've just had the regulatory initiatives grid published. And I guess for the industry, the big one there is that the consumer duty where they've said there's not going to be any delay to the timetable of implementation. We're going to get a policy statement in July, and then they want implementation by April 2023. And that's by April 23, not not on April 2023. So they want to see progress ahead of that as we, as we run into Q1 next year. That is not far away. There's a couple of other things in the in the regulatory initiatives grid, post-implementation review of investment pathways, 
some more work on consumer decisions off the back of Stronger Nudge. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Streamlined ISA's consultation paper due second half of this year. And a new consultation for LTAFs, expanding them to be available for retail investors in the summer of 2022. Yay. So, look, there's going to be quite a lot landing over the summer, one way and another. I think we're all going to be a bit busy. So, just think about your holiday plans. Right. IFS report on changes in spending through retirement. If you haven't read this, it's worth a look if, you, if you're involved in the retirement space at all. Because there was a couple of really interesting things in there. So they used annual UK household survey expenditures to document how spending changes with age of retirees. And then they kind of drilled into it a little bit and cross generations. And adjusting for generational differences, they say, as well as changes in sample composition as people die, this revealed that age profiles of spending are much flatter than a cross-sectional picture suggests, and that for higher-income households and those in couples, spending rises slightly with age in early retirement. And they go on to say, we find no evidence that on average the spending needs of retirees fall at older ages. Thus, they say, planning drawdowns based on an expectation of lower spending in late retirement may result in unexpected shortfalls in standards of living once older ages are reached. Instead, our results suggest that people's desired spending profiles are on average flat and possibly slightly rising in real terms. Now, that's kind of a big deal. For a long time, there was this conventional wisdom, this accepted wisdom that the retirement spending was kind of U-shaped, that when you first retired, you got lots of holidays and spend lots of stuff. And then as you kind of slowed down a bit and got a bit older, spending would diminish and then you'd, your health needs would start to escalate and you'd spend more money on home care and so on. So it'd go back up again. So you end up with a U-shape. And the IFS is saying, uh-uh, not so. So I think that has some pretty interesting implications for retirement income planning. And what was also intriguing, and this really surprised me, is they say, we also find evidence showing that incomes are rising in real terms with age. However, it does not seem to be the case that spending patterns are driven by income profiles. An increasing number of retirees are saving as they age, and the average rates of saving are similarly increasing with age. In other words, over the past decade or so, average spending of retirees has not grown as quickly with age as their state and private pension incomes have, which really came as a surprise to me because my perception was that there are quite a lot of people in retirement who don't have enough money to live on. And I guess that might be true within what the IFS have said. But it does also beg the question, what are they saving for? You know, why, why are you saving money? You know, is it that you just actually ha- literally have too much money? And so then you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you should be looking at sort of handing that money off to, if you don't need it, give it to someone else. And if you do need it, what are you going to need it for? Is this, is this you making prudent provision for healthcare needs in later retirement? I think that poses some interesting questions, both for product providers and, and certainly for advisors. And also for organisations like MAPS and perhaps for policymakers as well in terms of the levers they pull and the influence they can exert over the income available to people in retirement. And one other point that gets picked up by the IFS is on de-risking. And they say uh, many DC schemes move towards lower risk assets in the lead up to retirement. If the rate of drawdown is relatively slow, the case for moving the whole of a retiree's pension pot into safe assets is not obvious. So, again, just the IFS there is kind of gently putting down a bit of a challenge to to the industry and saying, you know, that run up to retirement, 
why are you moving it into safe assets? Maybe that's not the best thing to do. So I think, you know, for trustees and IGCs as well, if you haven't read it, you should, because there's some strong stuff in there. Okay. So a couple of weeks ago, Guy Opperman very kindly came and did a, an online meeting with the Pensions Playpen, which is kind of a self-help group for people with a fascination with all things pensions related. And the poor man, Guy, kind of submitted himself to a, a, a joint interview between Henry Tapper and myself, which was extremely generous of him. He gave us a, an hour of his time and he was very open and engaging. One of the things he picked me up on was a bit of a rant I'd had in one of my previous podcasts about the stronger nudge and the disparities between the FCA's rules and the DWP's. And I'd been making the point that under DWP rules on trust-based DC schemes, you couldn't opt out of PensionWise in the same call when you first contacted your pension provider. You had to kind of leave the building, go around the block and come back in again and say, yep, no, I definitely don't want to talk to PensionWise. And Guy was making the point that, yeah, that was his choice. He deliberately beefed up the regulations to make them tougher because he thought they weren't good enough. That's fair enough. And, you know, I've also previously had a bit of a rant about the FCA and the pensions regulator not always being entirely on the same page. And again, you know, I'm seeing more evidence that actually perhaps they are. So I wouldn't go so far as apologising to them, but I will take that back a little bit. Guy talked briefly about the auto-enrolment reforms because this call happened on the day of the Queen's speech. So we kind of guessed there wasn't going to be a pensions bill. And then later that morning, we found out actually there wasn't. But he did just kind of briefly make passing reference to a private member's bill. And there was that one that had been brought forward by Richard Holden. And he seemed to be sort of hinting, well, you know, maybe maybe we could get the auto-enrolment reforms through by the back door via a private member's bill, which I just found slightly perplexing because in the end, it's still going to need Treasury support. And either Treasury is willing to support it or it's not. And if it is, why not just make it part of the kind of government's legislative program and do the job properly? I don't know. I think the whole question of when, I don't think it's if, but when the auto-enrollment reforms are actually going to get implemented is, is a really interesting one. And there's clearly some interesting conversations going on behind the scenes on that one. So Guy also talked about value for money and the DWP's interest in this now. And since we had that conversation, we've now more recently had this joint paper published by the FCA and the pensions regulator on value for money. And the paper sets out and invited comments on three key elements, investment performance, customer service and scheme oversight, and costs and charges. And they highlight the outcomes they're aiming for are for stakeholders to take a holistic view of value for money in the interest of long-term saver outcomes, appropriate and comparable reporting metrics are developed, which help drive better decision-making on behalf of members in workplace pensions, and which can also be extended to non-workplace pensions at a later date. Ah, uh, yeah. And meaningful comparisons between schemes are facilitated. And finally, consideration is given to how this approach could be aligned with VFM assessment of pensions in decumulation. So that's quite big, I think. So they're saying it's got to apply across all pensions, including non-workplace. It will start with the default workplace pensions, but ultimately it's going to cover all DC pensions. And how all this gets measured, particularly the costs and, well, the costs and charges, and particularly the investment performance, because they offer up half a dozen different ways you can measure investment performance. And also customer service. You know, there's, I think there's quite a lot to argue over there. 
And this is going to determine not just product design, but also for product providers, systems and operational matters, such as how you interact with your customers. So when you throw in the consumer duty, which we will be coming back to another day once we get the FCA output on that, I think there's the potential for change in the industry over the next couple of years, that combination of the value for money work and the consumer duty. And initially, that the consequences might be relatively subtle in their, in their initial manifestation. But I think ultimately, they're going to be pretty profound and potentially even existential in their consequences. And I don't think it'll necessarily be detrimental to competition either. I don't think this is just going to raise the entry bar or make it harder for new entrants to come. And in fact, in some ways, it could lower it because a well-designed fintech offering designed for this new world order could potentially wipe the floor with competitors weighed down by you know, legacy systems, outdated processes, and you know, ossified management. So I think looking ahead to consumer duty and thinking about all this value for money stuff, this is definitely stuff worth engaging with the DWP on. You know, They said the door is open, they want to talk to the industry about it, and I think it would be rude of us not to take them up on their offer. So coming back to that meeting with Guy Opperman, he also talked about their forthcoming input, call for input on decumulation. I think that's due any day now. By the time you listen to this, it may already be out. And I think that also is potentially quite interesting because, you know, thinking about the value for money stuff and thinking about the TPRFCA intention to align themselves, whatever the DWP does on decumulation for trust-based schemes, you know, may have knock-on implications for, for contract-based pensions as well. And Guy took us for a quick canter around the collective defined contribution gallops as well. And it's worth just reminding ourselves that CDC continues to enjoy quite a lot of support across the industry and could potentially be quite a valuable addition to the landscape, whilst also acknowledging that it's pretty complicated to deliver. And I think the DWP would really quite like to see the industry come up with a consensus on exactly what it should look like. You know, we've got the Royal Mail scheme, fine. But if we're going to do some sort of collective scheme, and particularly a collective scheme for decumulation, I think there's there's an open invitation there for the industry to talk through with the DWP how that could work. So, you know, it feels like there's quite a lot going on there. So Guy also talked about the midlife MOT and talked about the digital MOT that MAPS has delivered in conjunction with the DWP and the delivery through job centres. And he also talked about the efforts of private sector organisations to deliver an MOT themselves. You know, Aviva have done pioneering work on this. Hargreaves Lansdowne did a bit of work on it. The point he was making is that he's got some money to spend on trials around delivering a midlife financial MOT. He wants to put together evidence on what works. And so, again, you know, the door at Caxton House is open to imaginative businesses that want to make something happen in this space. So I thought that was a really positive invitation. And it struck me that, you know, Guy's been in the job for nearly five years. He's, he's almost overtaken Steve Webb's record. And here he was setting out, I think, a fairly ambitious plan for further policy activity at the DWP, which after five years in the job is, is no small thing. He's also elsewhere continuing to work on plans on the engagement season and how the industry can deliver on that. And that's pretty positive too. So I just want to f finish up with uh, a call I was on last week, one of these joint meetings. It wasn't, it wasn't just me and her, with Tulip Sadiq, who I'd never come across before. She's the Shadow Economic Secretary of the Treasury. And she was talking about a few things. She was expressing continued support for, for Labour's position on the windfall tax, which, as we all now know, Rishi Sunak has executed a screeching U-turn on and has now delivered. 
more relevantly for our sector, she talked about how there was too much capital tied up in housing. Well, I mean, separately, I agree with her. I've been doing a lot of work on equity release, and I think that's a really interesting sector with some huge potential, as yet unrealized, that could deliver additional income for people that really need it. Anyway, back to Tulip Sadiq. She was kind of making a pretty strong hint towards... Oh, and by the way, she was also saying, look, this is not Labour policy yet. So, you know, don't don't quote me on any of this. So I'm just saying, you know, for context, she was just airing her own private thoughts and, and just kind of speculating gently in some directions. And she was at pains to point out that, you know, we shouldn't be interpreting this as anything like formal Labour policy. But she was saying from her point of view we should be looking at capital and or income tax impositions on property investment. And I guess there she's talking mainly about people with second homes. They want to unlock capital to support the growth of new businesses. And as she put it, unearned income should be taxed properly. Well, we can have a long debate about what properly means. But I thought it was worth just you know noting in passing that's where she's at at the moment on that one. Um, and she also flagged up inheritance tax as a, an area that she thinks is worth reviewing. So again, a stress, just her, just her musings, nothing like official labour policy, but worth noting. So there we go. Quick roundup on stuff that's been going on. We might come back to the value for money stuff. Obviously, we've got the consumer duty coming soon. And I mentioned Henry Tapper. I'm going to be doing a recording with him next week on pension credit and some work he's been doing around all of that. In the meantime, there we go. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Uh, If you have, give it a favorable review, like, subscribe, whatever if you aren't already. And do tell your colleagues, friends, family, whoever uh, about it and share the love. Thanks for listening.